Welcome to the Hey Salespeople podcast, where we focus on delivering immediately actionable best practices for sales professionals. I'm your host, Jeremy Donovan from SalesLoft. Hey, salespeople, today it is my great pleasure to welcome Andy Harris to the show. Welcome, Andy. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Andy is the Chief Executive Officer at Challenger. Yes, that same Challenger that brought you the Challenger sale, as well as the Challenger customer, which is also an equally awesome book and guideline for sellers and customer success professionals. We're also joined by my trusty co-host, Shande Person. Welcome, Shande. Hey, thanks. We're going to obviously dive right in. We'll talk a little bit about the relevance of the Challenger model in today's buyer-centric selling environment. But Andy has had an amazing career, so we'll talk about her experiences across sales and marketing and, and leading companies. Uh, before we do that, I'd love to ask guests about an interesting or unusual hobby. And in Andy's case, I chose her hobby because I looked at her LinkedIn profile and saw that she is an adjunct faculty member at Northwestern at the Kellogg School. You're a very busy executive. What motivated you to carve out time to teach at a business school? As a woman entrepreneur, um, I've been doing this for a long time and I really wanted to give back and I love the space. So the class that I teach is called Leading and Launching Startups. So it's really in my wheelhouse. I, I kind of joke it's the only uh, class I'm qualified to teach at Kellogg, but it's really the idea of you know that experience and helping people launch their startups. And, and I love hearing like all the new ideas and the new pitches. And so it really keeps me um, relevant and also just connecting with the students and, and hearing their brilliant ideas. How often do you find that the students who go through that experience actually do take the leap and start a company as opposed to going to another company in, in say, product management? I think a lot of the new things that we've set up at, at Kellogg do allow people to really feel confident that they have product market fit and that they really understand the unit economics and some of the things that will help them um, start their startup. I always tell people in my class, like it's also if you want to be more of an entrepreneur in a large corporate environment, that's a great path as well. And that not everyone has to found a company. You could be, you know, a head of sales and marketing, for example, like my career path for um, early stage startup companies as well. You still kind of get that entrepreneur um, feel and spirit. I love talking to you because um, as I think about when I was an undergrad, my career in sales started with someone like you who was an entrepreneurship professor, but told me that getting into sales was the best way to understand what it's like to be an entrepreneur. So how much sales are you talking with your students? Yeah. So we use the, the business model of Canvas. So it's a 10-week class. And so the first part is really around you know discovery, product market fit. At the end of the day, you could have an awesome product or an awesome, sorry, awesome service, but if you can't get it into the hands of the consumers or the people that need it or want it, um, then it doesn't make any sense. And so it is so important. And I also always talk about that first sales hire and how hard it is to go from founder sales you know, to really hiring people to actually sell that are not the founders. And I think that that's where people get tripped up a bit because they expect that that you know, fancy VP of sales that they bring in is going to do the same thing, but nothing replaces kind of that passion. So it is really important to think about those hires along the way. So the last part of the class, we really talk about execution and being the CEO and culture fit and hiring and recruiting. So that is also tied in, I believe, to sales because it's all about having the right people at the right time. Is there an ideal profile of that great first sales hire? It sounds like it's it's not the person who was the XVP of sales at Salesforce or IBM or Microsoft or what have you. I think that's where people get tripped up. They always say, oh my gosh, they were head of sales at Google or Uber, right? And they want to hire that person. But what they don't realize is that 
that person hasn't carried a bag in a while. Um, they don't really know how to sell without you know a lot of resources. And so there, it is important. There is a, a profile of someone who's a little bit more resilient, a little bit more of a go-getter. Um, I would say, you know, we all talk about the hunter-farmer model. They're more of a hunter. Um, they're not so steeped in processes. Um, you know, at Challenger, we talk about chores being one of the skill sets that, um, you know, is more table stakes, right? But they're not the people that are like, oh, but I have all my data in Salesforce, even though I haven't closed a deal in six months, right? So we try to focus on the, the gifts, which is another Challenger skill, which is those gifts of just being um, super personal, but also the skills around constructive tension, around teaching and tailoring the message, offering those those really valuable insights, um, especially when you have a new product you have to or service, you really have to be able to offer those um, you know, insights, economic values. So very different skill sets. Was one of the things you mentioned chores? Did you say chores? Yeah, we talk about, um, in, in Challenger, we talk about gifts, skills, uh, chores, and graces. Those are kind of how we, we break out the different skills of um, when we see skill sets. And so when you think about when you're hiring people, like some people are really good at like doing all the things right, like the account planning, entering in their data, you know, doing, but they don't actually get out there and they don't create constructive tension or interesting insights, or they're not um, charismatic in front of their, their clients. And then you have people that have sort of those gifts, which are that ability to come in and energize a room and make people feel comfortable and, and build those relationships. And then we talk about graces, which is just being polite, returning calls, which once again is more of a table stakes. And then what we really think differentiates people are, are kind of those skills, those challenger skills that we call them. And that's really around creating those insights, that constructive tension, um, driving the, the sales process. Often people don't want to drive the sales process. That's really when, when we see the differences. What combination is the ideal combination of each of the four? Is there anyone that needs to be more prevalent in the sales process? I mean, definitely the, the skills piece of it. And actually, um, we have some data around this. So the importance of the sales experience. So if you break it out, it's actually 19% of it is around company and brand impact. So that's just how you show up. So, you know, Sales Loft, uh, Challenger, how, how people perceive our brand. 19% is around the product and service delivery. Um, so, you know, this is around driving customer loyalty. And then 9% is around, do they see value from your value to price? But actually 53% of it is the sales experience. So um, what drives it is demonstrating unique insights, driving decision-making, understanding and addressing different stakeholder needs. So, you know, we talk a lot about mobilizers and in this new COVID selling world, there's lots of different stakeholders. Um, procurement is playing a bigger role, especially when we think of, I think 38% of budgets have been slashed unless it's like absolutely necessary, right? So, you know, procurement's like pushing really hard on that. And then how do you make it just easy to purchase, right? You don't want to put a lot of barriers. One of the things we saw in our new research is around the idea that people are um, taking a lot more steps to get to the end of the sales process. So the more you can help guide them through that process and push that process, I think is, is really important. Sometimes the challenger framework is discussed as being the following, which is there's relationship selling, there is consultative selling, which is I'm going to diagnose what your problem is and prescribe a solution. And then challenger selling is I'm going to bring an idea to you that you don't necessarily know about. It could be solving a problem, but it's more likely an opportunity to take advantage of something that, yes, could increase revenue, reduce cost, control risk, and so on. Is that the right perception? Yeah. When you look at a high potential salespeople, um, you know, relationship selling is important. Solution selling is important. Um, what we have found is that it's really this challenger sale um, where, and, and the four pillars of that are really creating constructive tension, um, tailing so it resonates. So really thinking about the specific needs of the customer, of the client, 
teach for differentiation. So valuable business insights and then taking control of the sales process. Because actually, and that's the part that I think is the hardest for people is really understanding that like you do need to take control of the sales process, not be dogmatic or aggressive, but really um, that mutual action plan, right? That like, I'm going to do this and then you're going to do this and then, you know, that dance. And so I think it is really important to think about that. Challenger also has the statistic, and I know it evolves over time, that there you know, was 6.8. It's probably some larger number now of people who are involved in the decision, but also that buyers are X percent through their buying process before they even call a salesperson. How does Challenger apply when, when the buyer is whatever, 64% through their buying process before they engage a salesperson? How does Challenger then play in that environment? Yeah. And I think that goes back to um, just thinking about differentiators and, you know, economic value and and really setting yourself apart. Um, I also think in this climate, especially creativity, like we've been creating videos for our top 20 prospects where I've come on and said, hey, you know, it'd be great to have you as a customer. Here's all the things I'm excited about that we're doing at Challenger. So really thinking outside of the box, um, especially because we're not meeting people in person. So I think that that brain power piece of Challenger is still really important, even if there's 64%. And and still, like, to be honest, um, we actually just released a new module around negotiations. And so I think that that's another part where people think that they're done. Then procurement comes in and all these other stakeholders. And it's like, wait a minute, now the process basically starts over again. So I think making sure you're driving that value from the very beginning, from the early conversations and making sure you're driving it all the way home is is really important because that's not, you're stuck making concessions, you know, two days before the end of the quarter. And you're like, but I already put this in my pipeline. I already put this as, you know, commit. We've all been there where you're like, you've got to be kidding me. Um, In this new environment, it's important for people to really understand the negotiation process better. Is there a way to anticipate who is going to jump in and throw a a wrench in the process? Or (laughs) what ways can you set yourself up for easier negotiations at the beginning of the sales process, knowing that your buyers may already have like some level of education, or there may be some procurement person that might appear halfway through or three quarters of the way through the process? I think at the beginning, you always want to ask, like, who is the decision maker? Who else should be involved in this process? What are the steps to the process to close this? I mean, all the questions that people hate to ask. Like, I feel like the questions people hate to ask is the budget piece. And then are you accountable? Are you the decision maker? Are you the stakeholder? Um, So really getting that early on, um, because if you know that you're spending a lot of time with the gatekeeper, you know, you're just burning calories on the sales process. So I do think it's really important to ask those upfront. Um, and then we talk about in Challenger a lot about mobilizers. So who are the people within the organization that are really going to help mobilize this idea, um, help them, help you bring consensus to make this decision, help you with the business case, help you kind of get it. If you are working with someone who's not the procurement or decision maker, um, you know, who do you need to really get in your camp? You've talked about a couple of processes that I, I probably fall into, I guess they fall into the chores category. One is account planning and the other is mutual account plans, right? That I guess is in the taking control. On account planning, one of the things I've found over the years is it's really, really hard to get account planning motions to stick in companies. They, they get momentum and then they die after a year or a year and a half. Have you been in an environment where an account planning process actually stuck? If not, then welcome to the crowd. If yes, what, what did you do to make that sticky? Yeah, well, we've done, I've tried, I mean, a lot of things, right? You've got the carrot and the stick and, you know, we've done everything from being like, you don't have an account plan, you can't get your commission on this, right? To to being like, we'll give you extra commission if you, you know, or we'll give you incentivize them different ways to do the account plans. I agree with you. I will tell you that account plans, not as much I've been able to stick, but mutual action plans, it's an Excel spreadsheet and it's literally like 
on this date, this person. It, it takes five minutes. And I made all my sales reps always do them. I said, you know, I at least need to see visibility into this or that is a, a non-starter. Um, I think where people get caught up on account plans is they make them so long and cumbersome and difficult. That's why they don't stick. I think, you know, having something simple and easy, we used a, a, a Google Drive for it. And it was just like, literally, I could pull up every account plan and know what those those milestones and dates were. Is it something where the rep will go with their manager one-on-one and discuss it? Or how do you know that the rep <laughs> has done it? Yeah. I and mean, we had a thing where you couldn't move it in the sales process. I would actually have my um, my sales ops person move it back if they didn't have the account plan, if it wasn't on the dates. But the thing is that um, you know, with the mutual action plan, um, that's something you go through with the client, right? That's like, I, we've agreed upon these dates. We've agreed that these are the stakeholders. We've agreed that this is how this is going to get done. This is how long the process is. Like, for example, like if you're working with a large, you know, enterprise company, it might take six months just to get something through procurement. Knowing that ahead of time, I'm not going to forecast that for, you know, an in-quarter close. You know, I think that's the mistakes a lot of sales reps make. They don't even understand that, um, especially these large enterprise accounts, that it can take six months just to get the paperwork signed through legal. So really understanding that ahead of time helps with forecasting. And then really it's for them, right? Because if you're not, if you know you're not getting commission on this big deal and that in the next six months, you might want to like focus on some of your other deals as well. So you talked about the sales cycle being a lot longer than it used to be. It's tough to forecast as a rep whose manager has been there for 12 years. And, you know, back in my day, everything used to just close within three weeks. <laughs> so the push from a lot of these managers is get things in, get them in on time or get it in before the end of the quarter. So it might be falsely pushing things through in a way that isn't necessarily great for the long run, but it will get the deal done in the, in the end, or maybe push the customer away so that the deal doesn't close at all. My question is, is it important to figure out ways to make the sales cycle shorter? If not, what are some ways that we can kind of balance the territories out to make things easier on the sales rep, knowing that the, the sales process is going to take a little bit longer, make sure that they're still able to get to their numbers? So, I mean, you know, there's the old saying, right, that time kills all deals. So, of course, you don't want an extended sales process. But I also think you don't want to discount to get a deal done. Um, actually, in our negotiations model, we talk a lot about, you know, how much do you discount and when do you discount and when do you, and once again, not understanding the price up front and not understanding the value up front is what hurts you in the end. But really, I think technology is a big piece. I think sales leaders now have to really look at all the technology that's out there and think about how they can use that to more coach their team members through these processes versus just being like, why isn't closing? Why, you know, like, I, I think that those days are kind of over of the, you know, <laughs> kind of the, the sales leader saying, I don't understand. I don't understand. Tell me why. Tell me why. Right now it's like, well, here's some data around, um, you know, we tried to sell this customer six times and we've never been able to close a deal with them. Or here's some data, you know, some win-loss data that is really helpful for us to look at that we typically don't win deals, um, you know, against certain types of companies, right? We're better, um, you know, we talk about the ideal client profile, right? So we're much better at selling to this type of customer. So I think that, I, that really, when I think about sales leadership now, it's really understanding the data and then coaching your team because you have a better holistic view of what's really happening in the organization. We obviously, you're four months into Challenger, but if you had decided to start a, a sales tech company instead, <laughs> are there any gaps or is there a something an app for that, for everything that your team would need? I think there's a lot of apps out there and there's a lot of interesting stuff in the sales enablement space, certainly. But I also think there's gaps of bringing it all together. Um, you know, I came from the employee engagement space and what I saw was there was a lot of consolidation. Like, so you had a company that did like 
recognition and rewards. Then you had a feedback company that if you think about recognition, it's positive feedback. Then it was like a feedback performance management company. Then you had those all those employee engagement surveys, right? So none of it was connected. And so I think what truthfully needs to happen is, is more consolidation and really being able to do more of an end-to-end sales experience. I love the idea of listening, but the average person who leads a sales team does not have time to listen to every single call. So then, you know, you have that data, but then what do you do with that data, right? No one's really bringing that all together. Like, you know, we can say from Challenger, like we could look at that data and say, well, here's some pretty interesting insights on, you know, what that person did and what they should be doing. And they're doing more, um, you know, building the relationship, but not offering insights. So we could actually listen to that data. I think it's really understanding like what truly makes people great. And uh, we talk about it at Challenger about like winning the moments that matter. Like what are those moments and how do you kind of slice that with a coaching opportunity? When you look at a, a coach, any sport, they don't wait till the end of the game to say, you know, so when you lost an opportunity, right? Where you're like, oh, well, now you should have done this, this, and that. Like the best coaches are constantly tweaking and changing the the plays and the team dynamics and trying to figure out how to win in real time, not waiting till a deal, you lose a deal and say, well, actually now I listen to all your recordings and I can tell you why you lost that deal. It's interesting I, in, in that metaphor, right? If I were to talk about a sales meeting as the play you're in, you're there for on the field for a period of time before the defense comes in. I guess there are little course corrections you can do during the play, and that's the meeting itself. I guess the real coaching happens when the you know offense and defense trade off. I'm relating this to the call coaching world versus like the forecast deal review world. That if you're in the middle of a call, I think it's really distracting probably to to see feedback that says, "Hey." You need to use less ums and ahs, or you've asked too many questions already. Stop asking questions. I think that might be really distracting to be determined, I suppose. Yeah, I think it's more that when the call ends, some sort of insight tool that allows you to say, well, you tried to only solution sell, or you focus on features and functionality in this call. My point more was that people use a lot of the technology after deals already lost. And as we know, there's like, especially now in 2020, there's about 25 steps in a sales process, a complex sales process now. So at some point in that sales process, we always talk about the the meeting that you're not part of. So you get off a Zoom call now and you're like, well, that was an interesting tool. What did you think of it? What did you think, right? It's that if you could be like a fly on the wall in that conversation, you would actually know better where you stand. On the podcast over time, we've talked to a lot of people about the decision of going from AE to sales manager and both the skills that change as well as the mindset, right? That you know you become more of a coach, you have to live in the joy of other people's success, right? As opposed to your own success. I'm curious for you, since you made the transition from CRO to CEO, what sorts of adjustments have you had to make to the way that you manage and lead in that transition? You definitely have to make transitions because now you're not just worried about the revenue numbers, you're worried about profitability, you're worried about the product roadmap, you're worried about like if Challenger as an example, like I'm constantly asking the question, you know, what are we doing from a product perspective? What are we, what's top of mind for people? Like, I know we have this awesome research, but how are we using this to inform our product roadmap? Um, then thinking about our, our customer retention rates and thinking about that. So it's just really trying to take all those pieces together. You're still kind of that coach, um, but you're just coaching, thinking about, um, you know, different options. Like, I mean, I love spending time on go to market and, and sales and marketing, but knowing that like, I have to spend, um, you know, time in other places. But um, I will say, like, I really believe in building a diverse leadership team and and having lots of different skills and professionals and letting them really have the power and the autonomy. Like, they're the expert now. I'm not. And I need to be able to step back and let them be the expert. So I actually coach a lot of my AEs and be like, do you really want to be that 
sales manager, especially at the beginning, because you probably, if you're a good, if you're a good AE, you might not make as much money being a sales manager. I think that's the biggest thing that they don't understand is that like one bad apple can screw up your entire commission. <laughs> so as a sales manager, whereas if you really bet on yourself and you think you're a good rep, you'll do okay. What are some of the things though that you feel are things a CEO should not delegate? Revenue is definitely at the end of the day, right? I have a private equity firm that doesn't want me to ignore revenue. So uh, certainly you don't ignore it, but at the end of the day, I'm not involved in every single deal, right? Um, obviously some of the bigger deals or some of the deals that need some more executive leadership. If I know somebody, you know, through my being working for 30 years, like if I happen to know somebody, well, that's different. I think it's more about the escalation process. So you still know what's going on, but you are there more as an escalation versus like in the weeds. I think, you know, actually when I teach my entrepreneur class, I talk about, you know, as, as a CEO, you have to learn, um, you know, what you should focus on. And often where I see startups fall down or even early stage companies is that the CEO tries to do too much and doesn't prioritize well, doesn't really delegate enough. And then they just wind up being um, actually like a blocker to everything. Nothing gets done because it has to go through the CEO. And then you wonder why companies can't grow. Since we have a, a little bit of time left, I had kind of two different tracks of questions. The first is around AI. So I, I'm curious what is Challenger's position on the impact of AI and sales and how salespeople should think about managing their careers? So I love AI. Just as a side note, it's, um, I find it fascinating. I love, I mean, I'm a tech person at heart. So um, I think it definitely has a place. I also think that data, like in any situation, um, whether it's political, non-political, it can tell the story you want it to tell. So I think you have to be really careful and thoughtful about how you use data to tell a story. Um, so I think that Data doesn't lie, but it can certainly paint a different picture. You just have to be cautious about that. Um, I will tell you within Challenger, within our research, we are definitely doing a lot of work around how does AI affect um, the sales process? How does it affect the sales experience? How does it change? Because you have so much more data at your fingertips. We've always talked about actionable insights. Well, now you have data that gives you insights, but I don't think anything replaces kind of that human touch and that human insight. So I do think it's important to, it's a great uh, additive to the sales process, but it doesn't replace the sales process. It doesn't change the speed or how many things you can juggle. Like I think it's like, oh, well, I'm giving you all these tools now. So now you have all these tools. So you should be able to make way more phone calls or have way more meetings. And that doesn't always translate because you are also reading data, researching because you have more at your, your fingertips. And I think it also adds to what you were saying before about having a bunch of disparate systems where, you know, you might get one thing that tells you this, but then you might get another thing that tells you this. And it's how do you put all that information together? You could spend a lot of time trying to tweak the messaging, getting the perfect message. And then you completely missed your opportunity because you spent so much time putting things together. Yeah. And, and keep in mind, we're all human, right? So the, the brain is complex. So I even use the example of when I teach, like we get these evaluations at the end of the, the quarter and, um, Jeremy, you teach as well. So you probably have had this experience where what, what one person in your class loves and thinks is amazing, the other person in your class is like, oh, I didn't find that valuable or helpful. Or that guest speaker was amazing. Oh, I didn't actually like that guest speaker. So right, like it's hard. I mean, I have 50 students. They don't all agree. I'm with you on the teaching side. And I think it just relates to just sort of who, who you are as a person. Also, I, I remember reading Seth Godin's book, Purple Cow, ages and ages ago. And uh, he talks about the word remarkable. And I, I love how he defines that as able to be remarked upon, you know, to take a stand. So whether it's teaching in a university or whether it's teaching your prospects and customers about what you're doing, conviction matters a tremendous amount. I was actually talking to um, an AE. I was asked AEs, like, what's the deal that got away? And I was talking to an AE at, at another company, like, what's the deal that got away? And they said, like, I had this deal lined up. And in this case, they brought in, 
you know, a senior exec from their company and their senior exec actually killed the deal unintentionally, of course. And the reason they killed the deal was because they just didn't have the conviction, right? Like they didn't take control in the way that they should. And I think it's a signaling thing is if an executive comes in and the executive is not confident, if the executive caves to small, small demands, that communicates something in the subtext of, of what they do. The last thing I wanted that we wanted to ask you about has to do with one of the first things you mentioned, which was entrepreneurship. I've worked at companies where, and this is particularly like a salesperson's question, where companies did not want the salesperson to bring ideas. Your job is to go sell. It's engineering's job or product's job or whatever, just go sell. Now, having been in marketing and sales, where do you land and in, in how, how much should salespeople get involved in intrapreneurial types of things? Yeah, I mean, they're in the front lines. They're hearing from the customers every day. So I can tell you from a software perspective, when I, um, you know, every company I've ever worked with, we've had a product council and that's made up of customer success, sales, finance, product, obviously engineering. But if you look at our weighted scorecard, sales has one of the highest because they know why we're losing or winning deals. And they hear all the time, oh, if it could just do, especially in software, right? If it could just do this one thing or if it could just do this. And and I think going back to, you know, the idea of like when you're creating a product or a service, you're solving for either a pain your customer has or you want to help them gain something. So often your customers, salespeople are, are your, your sales reps are the people that know best how that's being perceived. So I think it's really important. I would actually kind of frown upon that. I also think just diversity of thought, right? Like you don't want just one opinion. I always want to hear from, from multiple stakeholders. Well, thank you for sharing all your wisdom with us today. Uh, I assume you guys are hiring aggressively like the rest of the planet with all this cash floating around in the economy and people starting to get back to work. How should people approach getting a job at Challenger? What Everyone says connect with me on LinkedIn, but I, I'm wondering like, what's the way in? Yeah, I mean, certainly, obviously, you can connect with me on LinkedIn, but um, we we do have our recruiter out there posting a bunch of jobs on, on LinkedIn as well. But um, go to our website, challengerinc.com. Um, we have a bunch of job postings out there. Any referrals we love. So yeah, yeah, but we are hiring and growing. Um, and I'm really excited about the future. And uh, we have some exciting stuff planned for 2021. So and beyond. Well, again, Andy, thank you so much for sharing your wisdom with us today. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. And huge fan of obviously Sales Loft. So thanks for, for having us. Hey, Salespeople is a production made in partnership with Frequency Media. I'm your host, Jeremy Donovan. This podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever podcasts are found. Thanks for listening to the Hey, Salespeople podcast.